Well, there are so many answers to that question. By now, you've seen just how true it was when Ben Blackwell said that 2000 was a crucial year of connections. But man, you don't even know the half of it yet. That first West Coast tour set off some dominoes that would portend everything that was to come as Jack and Meg burrowed further into the new millennium. I'm Sean Cannon from Third Man Records and Nevermind Media. This is Striped, the story of the White Stripes. when we left off last episode, the White Stripes were finishing up that first West Coast run, but I want to rewind to a specific point in the middle of the tour when Janet Weiss from Slater Kinney saw the White Stripes with about 10 other people at Al's Bar in Los Angeles, was subsequently blown away, and then afterwards said... You guys should come on tour with us. I mean, just casually, you know, like, hey, come on tour. Be so fun. And we talked about how that was a really cool thing in the moment, even if it was off the cuff and almost certainly wouldn't happen. You know, like, even if she wasn't totally serious about it, it was still a huge compliment. Thing is, she actually was totally serious about it. Slater Kinney had an East Coast tour coming up in the fall, and it seemed like just the right fit to Janet. Let's pull back for a second, since it's important to understand the rationale that normally goes into booking an opener. Because unlike those three pavement shows the White Stripes did in 99, this wasn't a last-minute scramble to find an opener. Slater Kinney had time to plan. So a lot of times with indie bands going on tour, they want an opening act that can help sell more tickets or generate some extra buzz. Now, it could be that you're looking for a band that sounds similar to create, and sorry for the gross business term here, a little synergy. Or maybe you're just looking to bump those almost sold-out shows to totally sold-out shows. The White Stripes, as we know, wouldn't really help much with either of those things in 2000. But that was okay. It wasn't about business for Slater Kenny. We tried to get the best band we possibly could to go on tour with us. We wanted a band that we wanted to watch, you know? as well it was like make make good for the crowd we wanted like we wanted to be excited too we didn't like need a band with like a huge draw or anything because we were playing these small places i think for us we just really wanted it to be a good show we didn't want just another band exactly like us we wanted something that was a little different and at that time we were playing a lot of like rambunctious upbeat songs and kind of wanted another band that would like get the crowd you know like excited she was like this is really would be a great band for us to play with that's janet slater kinney bandmate corin tucker and sometimes that works out and sometimes it doesn't but you know they they agreed to it which was cool while the white stripes did agree to it it wasn't automatically a given that they would agree According to their booking agent, Dave Kaplan, he took him the offer for the tour. And I remember having conversations with Jack. He wasn't sure if he wanted to do it. I mean, he had a day job. He was, um, I think he was doing, he was doing like, like a PA, like a production assistant on some, I, I don't know exactly what it was for, like 
maybe commercials or something. Cause was, this is in Detroit. So I don't think it was film industry stuff, but he, he had, a, he actually had, you know, had a job. Wasn't sure if, you know, do I want to take time off to do this? And then he was like, all right, let's give it a shot. Cause Sleater Kinney was going to the East coast, which they had never played. And I think it's worth mentioning that all that happened. Uh, Janet telling her bandmates, Slater Kinney deciding to offer the slot and Jack and Meg agreeing to it within a two or three week span of Janet seeing them play. So yeah, when I said she was serious about it, I wasn't kidding. So they sign on to the tour, which was September 13th through the 27th, starting in Madison, Wisconsin, and ending in Washington, D.C. Now remember, Janet was floored to see the White Stripes live and sang their praises to everybody, but the rest of the crew was flying blind. Corin got her hands on the records and really liked them. But that doesn't necessarily translate sometimes into a good, a really good live band. I mean, I feel like actually a, a great live band, those are really few and far between. There's a lot of very good bands, you know, but I, we had toured enough with enough very different people over the years that I, I didn't have super high expectations going into it. But Cornham was in luck because at that point, as Blackwell says here, the White Stripes are hitting their fucking stride. And based on Corin's memory, well, he was right. Now, the first time she really got to sit and watch the band was during their show at the Southgate House across the river from Cincinnati. And it didn't hurt that the venue was a three-story Victorian mansion from a bygone era with these big bright red curtains behind the stage. In other words, the perfect setting to see a band like the White Stripes. It was very dramatic. And I was absolutely floored with how good they were live. I was so floored. I was like, oh, God damn it. Like, we have to play after them every night. Like, what have we done? You know, they were so good. They were so electric. Corin also remembered being taken with them personally, too, when they hung out after that show. There was like this weird, like, room upstairs that was the quote-unquote backstage, but it was just like a, almost like a weird attic. Like it was very bizarre and there was all kinds of stuff in there. And I remember Jack and Meg coming in the room and just, you know, being these like really interesting personalities. I remember Jack coming in and playing the piano in, you know, in the backstage, there was an upright piano in there and just being like, what, you know, what on earth? Like they had like, Both of them had a very interesting presence and Jack definitely, you know, he's got a, you know, a presence, like a personality. He was very much sort of being a peacock in the room and, you know, introducing the band and playing piano and doing a song. And we were like, whoa, you know. For Blackwell, though, the most important moment of that tour and one of the most important moments of the year 2000 came during the show they played the next night at Oberlin College. And uh, you're playing like the cafeteria. It's a weird room. It's the cafeteria, but they give it the name Dionysus. You know, leave it to a fucking liberal arts college in the Midwest for that. A conservatory. So they're playing at Dionysus. It's a small capacity room, couple hundred. And there's just this moment where they go into St. James Infirmary which at that point, from memory, they had not played in some time. This is a a song from the first album that they never really played, you know, the way that it was recorded on the album. 
they never played it in that manner live. And Jack just kind of pulls it out. Like they hadn't rehearsed it. They hadn't talked about it. He's just feeding off the audience. You know, this is something that he still does to this day of he's looking at the audience of what he needs to do. He's taking cues from them. He's trying to read them, what they want or need to hear. And he starts playing St. James Infirmary. He's just doing accents. Bomp, 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 bomp. And Meg locks in. She's hitting those accents with him. Well, folks, I'm going down to St. James Infirmary. they hit a mark where they crash and will stop and then he starts playing in like a boogie manner dun da 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 dun he's like playing double time and Meg's right along fucking with him well let her go let her go god bless her wherever she may be you may search this whole wide world over but you'll never find another sweetheart like me and I remember sitting at the merch table back of the room watching that and thinking oh fuck this is some next level shit. They had never done that before. I mean, basically to the point of like, they're just riffing. He's riffing, Meg's along. She couldn't have done that a year ago. She couldn't have done that six months ago. They've played enough together. They've played enough different rooms. They're locked in in a way that they had never been before. And that's a point where you can start having fun. You can start stretching your arms. You can start doing shit like that, playing a song that you hadn't played in a year. You know, there's this other moment that, that kind of explains why that St. James Infirmary is so, so good and so important. And that's three months earlier, the White Stripes are playing the Replay Lounge in Lawrence, Kansas. Now, this was on the tail end of their West Coast tour. Maybe the last time the White Stripes ever played on a floor. Um, no stage, pinball machines behind them. And for an encore... Jack starts playing Bob Dylan, I Threw It All Away, which song the band had never played before, never practiced. I don't know if they ever played it afterwards. Maybe once more afterwards. And Meg kind of just sat there, maybe tapped along on the ride cymbal, but that was it. She didn't play drums along with that. I thought it was cool that Jack would just go out there and start playing a song, but it definitely left something to be desired in regards to well, it's, it could be considered not the most in-your-face performance. And I know, yeah, that's not a song that needs to be in-your-face, but it would have been more enjoyable was Meg playing along. So take that in June, fast-forward three months to September, Oberlin, Ohio, and they start doing that. Uh, they start doing St. James Infirmary that way, which I know is a song they have played, and Meg knows how that song goes, but the way that they attacked it and the way that they locked him. And they come off stage, and Slater Kinney is well, how the fuck are we supposed to go on after that? And Slater Kinney technically didn't go on right after that. The White Stripes did an encore as an opener, which is not, that is straight showbiz rules. You are not supposed to do. 
<laughs> yeah, I totally forgot that. <laughs> <laughs> While Janet did eventually remember that, she wasn't exactly sure how that opening slot encore came about. But she did know it wasn't a diva move or anything like that. I don't even think they wanted to do it. I think we made them do it. We, I'm sure we told them, like, get out there. Go. They love it. You know, it really does sound like that Oberlin show was one for the books, even beyond that set from The White Stripes. Slater Kinney came out and they opened with Fortunate Son, which this is the lead up to the 2000 election. Like, that's a political song. You know, you talk about a feeling in a room, like that room was full of feeling from the stripes going on to Slater Kinney. Really, really badass, I think. Did he mention about selling the pizza? Oh, yeah. Uh, Janet also remembered one other thing from the show that night. <laughs> I think we sold, we were like, let's see if we can sell a half-eaten piece of pizza at the merge table. So we signed it with a Sharpie, like all everybody in all the bands signed it. And I think we sold, I think we sold it. I can't remember how much, like, I don't know, five bucks or something. Hey, if you bought that pizza and you're out there listening now, I really want to know. Please get in touch. Seriously. So, Uh, What stuck out to Janet about this tour even more than the pizza, though, (laughs) was just how much she enjoyed Jack and Meg being around at such an early stage in their career. Every third night, we had an odd number of people in our touring group, and every third night, Carrie and Cor and I would switch off having the single room, like in whatever Best Western we were staying in. And so every third night, I would get a single room, and I would have the White Stripes come stay with me because they didn't have any money, and... They weren't, you know, like that was like an upgrade, (laughs) like both of them staying in my room, you know, it was an upgrade to what they were doing on the tour. You know, their van would break down and they'd barely make it to the next show. And I think we all just had a really great time. There's a few people who all three of the Slater Kinney girls really loved. And as far as Jack and Meg went, we, we all, we all loved them. And Corin had a very similar sentiment. If you really love music and you really, you know, you're in it for for playing music and that's what you want to do with your life, I think you take that kind of talent really seriously. And, you know, the hierarchy stuff to me is like, it's so fleeting. It really is. And, and it's not as important as just being able to like be around other great musicians that should push you and inspire you to do different things. You know, and I felt like we had that kind of relationship with them. I'm gonna pick it up I'm gonna pick it up today I'm bound to pack it up I'm bound to pack it up and go away Dave Kaplan also had a very distinct memory of that tour when he saw the band during their three-show stand in New York City, which was uh, one show headlining at Mercury Lounge and two shows supporting Slater Kinney at Bowery Ballroom. And the first show before before Slater Kinney, they played Mercury Lounge was first because I was on an off day for Slater Kinney. And that was pretty great. But then seeing that when they opened for Slater Kinney at Bowery, packs sold out shows and seeing this, you know, another band's audience going nuts for them was like, wow, this is going to be really good. It was like Jack and Meg realized, oh my God, there's really something going on because that audience immediately embraced them. It was just one of those clear moments of somebody in ascension. 
Like this is kind of like the start of somebody having their moment. Around this time, there were also some other things happening behind the scenes that kind of echoed what Dave was just saying. But this wasn't about booking shows or getting tours. It was about the other side of the business, putting out records. Basically, interest was starting to heat up among prestigious indie labels. And that happened in part because of that Seattle show the band played back in June, where, as Blackwell mentioned last episode, Slim Moon from Kill Rockstars and Jonathan Poneman from Sub Pop saw the band. If memory serves, both of them asked to do a White Stripes album that day or in response to that day, having seen the band. You might remember that Janet said Slim Moon sent her to that L.A. show to get the White Stripes to sign with Kill Rockstars. And you might also remember that she didn't do it. But that didn't stop him. Slim wasn't able to do an interview for this, but he did send over a short statement about that period saying, quote, I had a really short marriage to a woman from Detroit who played me the first White Stripes album. I really liked it, and after the second one came out, I was certain they were great. Can't remember how it came about, but I did get word to Jack that I'd like to work with him, and we did speak on the phone about it. He asked a lot of intelligent questions about all the forms of promotion that KRS did for our bands at that time and what our budgets were. That's about all I remember. Now, similarly, I wasn't able to record an interview in time for this episode with Jonathan Poneman, who runs Sub Pop, and who put out the first album from Jack's old band, The Go, in 1999. But Blackwell remembers one thing in particular about Sub Pop wooing the White Stripes after Poneman saw him in Seattle. The joke is, you know, Poneman offered 10 grand to do, to do a White Stripes album on Sub Pop, which is a decent offer at that point. And the running joke is, anytime we have any business with Sub Pop, John Poneman still says, hey, that offer still stands. <laughs> Ten grand for a White Stripes album. We'll do it. <laughs> oh, you know, here's the other point, too. Before that tour, Jack didn't have an email address. And so I'm the email contact for all the band business that needs to be emailed. It's booking agent stuff, printing out, you know, tour itineraries, things like that. I get an email before that tour leaves from Calvin Johnson. It's the only email I've ever screamed at in my life. Super fanboy here, what can I say? He asked if Jack and Meg would want to record a single for Kay when they were out on that tour. So Calvin Johnson is, uh, well, you might say he's one of the godfathers of modern indie rock, underground, lo-fi, whatever you want to call it especially in the Pacific Northwest, where all the action was in the late 80s and 90s. In addition to being in the influential band Beat Happening, he started K Records in 1982, and it's existed ever since. While the label might not have had the same commercial success as Sub Pop or even Kill Rockstars over the decades, it's no less influential, <laughs> that's for sure. Calvin put out some of the first music from the Melvins, Beck, Built to Spill, Modest Mouse, The Gossip, Chromatics, and, and so many other amazing bands. And he championed the DIY aesthetic that still permeates a lot of underground music. Kurt Cobain even had a K-Records tattoo on his forearm. So, you know, 
is kind of a big deal. Hence Blackwell's screaming. I was at a record store called Jackpot. It was, I always like to check out independent 45s. And that's Calvin, who vividly recalls the first time he encountered the White Stripes music while in Jackpot, the uh, venerated Portland record shop. They had a wall of 45s at that time. And uh, just, you know, recent releases on independent labels and Portland artists, Northwest artists. And the White Stripes' first two Italy Records singles were there on the wall. And, you know, they really stood out because they, the band had already established a very distinct graphic identity, which was exciting. I was just knocked out just by the look. I just knew that I, I was going to love this band. And uh, so I got both records, and it turns out they were both as good as the covers, perhaps even better than the covers. It was perfect. It was like perfect rock and roll. It was, it was like it was like underground. Um, it was like rock and roll. It was punk rock. It had this uh, had this folk element too that was like a field recording type. Uh, it was just yeah, it was just everything all rolled into one. And that got Calvin thinking. There's a series he'd been doing since 1987. It's called the International Pop Underground. It's a series of seven-inch 45s. So we wanted to do this series that was International Pop Underground that was drawing all these different scenes from around the world that were making visionary music. So, you know, when I saw that, I was immediately, I was like, oh, they should have a single on our, on our series. But even though that thought was pretty much instantaneous, he didn't act on it quite so quickly. I didn't, like, immediately pick up a pen and write to them. I think it was a few months went by. And uh, I talked to a few people, and, and I was oh, this new band. They're great, White Stripes. Oh, yeah, I heard that single. Which set off some alarm bells in Calvin's head. Because normally when he'd snag a random 45 from a record store and tell his friends about it. Nobody I know has ever heard of them. I'd never heard of them, you know? It's just something I found, and I thought it looked good or whatever. So then I realized, oh, this isn't an obscure band. I mean, it was still a very obscure band. But it was a band that people already knew about. And I realized, oh, I should write to them because time's a wasting. At that point, well, Calvin didn't waste any more time. He wrote a letter and sent it to the address on the back of those singles because, you know, that's how you did it back then. Now, in addition to the label... He also ran a studio called Dub Narcotic. And normally what he'd do for the International Pop Underground series is say to a band, hey, if you're touring in the area and you got a day off, come to the studio. So that's what I proposed. Because I, I don't want to just be like, oh, record a single and send it to me in the mail. I didn't, want it, I, I didn't want it to be that in person. I want it to be more like we have a connection where we work together and collaborate on the recording in some way even if it's just me pushing the record button. And eventually he got a response. According to Calvin, though, it wasn't exactly an enthusiastic yes, please. It was a vague like, oh, yeah, we, yeah, we, we know about Kay. Yeah, no, that would be cool. Someday. Do a single, sure. It wasn't like they said, we're going on tour in November and we have a day off, so why don't we do it this day? It wasn't like that. It was more like, yeah, that's a good idea. Someday. In other words, it wasn't, uh, well, it was a no. Which is also what the band said to Sub Pop and Kill Rock Stars. 
So they turned down three of the coolest indie labels around. You know, these are three labels that just about anybody in this position would have killed to put out a record with, especially Blackwell. In my mind, 17-year-old Ben Blackwell's like, you're fucking blowing it. What do you mean? You don't want to put out a single on K Records? The hugest, not huge, just kind of label? You, In my mind, K and Beat Happening and Calvin are, are fucking godhead. That's the fucking ceiling. Like, this is the best you could ever hope for. K Records, Sub Pop, Kill Rock Stars. The White Stripes are on the radar of all those folks relatively quick. And for him to say, like, yeah, I'm, I'm just not interested in it. Like, I, I was like, oh, man. But in hindsight, it's like, oh, wow, no, Jack was smart. He always produced the White Stripe stuff from day one. And he owns the White Stripe stuff almost exclusively everything. That said, it sounds like it was also about more than just ownership. You know, it seemed like maybe it was about uh, being sure of who you are, you know, sure of your vision, and then knowing what you need to accomplish that. I think at that point, Jack was wiser to the fact that they might be able to, to bring more to the table than other folks are bringing to the table. Like, they don't need to put a single out. I mean, really, in hindsight, they didn't need to put out a single on K. They didn't need to put out a record on Sub Pop or on Kill Rockstars, really, at that point. I, th I think somewhat too, Jack was probably not, I was enamored with these. My love of Nirvana kind of spreads out to all of these other offshoots of, of their orbit. I don't think Jack was, was particularly enamored like I was. It was just like, yeah, it's just a label asking to put out a record. Like, no, we've got, we've got our own thing going. Like, I think respectfully declining, politely. And as it happens, Calvin also seemed to understand that idea inherently. It was, Here's a band that's doing their thing. And then, I mean, they obviously know what they want to do because they had a very specific aesthetic, both visually and musically. And, you know, it was beautiful. It was incredible. I mean, it was really like when I got the records, I was like, this is it. This is, this is everything that I ever want in music. So when they were like, yeah, that'd be cool someday, maybe. I just felt like, well, I'd put it out there. If it fits into their scheme of things, great. But if it doesn't, that's fine because they, they don't really need me. They, they're doing their thing, and it's great. You know, we've spent a lot of time talking about records they didn't put out in the year 2000. But so far, we haven't spent much time on the record they did put out. I, I went into it pretty pumped into listening to the album and then, you know, listened to the album over and over and over again. <laughs> I had started recently working at Rollins. Yeah, yeah, you know the drill. You're going to have to wait until next time to hear all about it, because that's all we've got for this episode of Striped, the story of the White Stripes. I want to say a special thanks to Ben Blackwell, Ben Swank, and the rest of the Third Man crew. We get production assistance from Mark Charles, Kojin Tashiro, and Melissa Locker. And additional scoring in this episode is by Lone Wolf Gang. The biggest thanks of all, though, goes to Jack and Meg White, the White Stripes, because without them, none of this would be possible. And speaking of which, if you want an even deeper look into the life of the band around 2000, you can head to thirdmanrecords.com to pick up their latest vault package, the accompaniment to Distill, celebrating the 20th anniversary of the White Stripes' sophomore album. 
And we've also put together companion playlists for seasons one and two of Striped, so you can hear a lot of the bands and songs mentioned in the show and maybe discover your next big musical obsession. You can find those playlists on your preferred streaming platform or by perusing the Third Man social channels. I'm your host and producer, Sean Cannon. See you next time. We did kind of joke that like all these bands that we took on tour just got huge. <laughs> the White Stripes, the Gossip, the Yeah Yeah Yeahs opened for us, and then they got huge. The Black Keys toured with us, and they got huge. So it was like we were being leapfrogged by all these bands, but the White Stripes being the you know the biggest. You know, it's still to this day I just can't believe how popular such a truly great band, like not conventional, not commercial not slick band like how they could get so huge is still to me like amazing it just hardly ever happens uh the professor was right that someone was going to be like the next rem but it wasn't it wasn't (laughs) they were close or they got close And I just think like they would stay in my house when they come to Portland, you know, like I have a picture of Jack on the couch and like Meg with her sleeping bag, like they're looking through my photo albums. Like they were not living the rock star life back then, you know, it was like them in a van driving themselves and, you know, doing all the work. And I, I feel like they always appreciated, like they always appreciated that third night hotel room, you know, like, when I would go see them as they got bigger, they would like just treat me like a queen. Like I'd get to come backstage early before everybody else, you know, just me and those guys hanging out, catching up and talking, you know, after the show, I would get to go back and they keep everybody else like corralled somewhere, you know, as they like, you know, after you play, you just want some time to like be normal before people come back. But they would always just, you know, tour manager would walk me back and always set me up somewhere where there's like monitors where I could hear or side stage or and just treated me just so well. And they really, I could tell that they appreciated, you know, the help or like just the support or just the friendship or whatever. Um, the camaraderie, you know, they just were kind in that way. And that's, you know, that's unusual.